Thanks for joining us today at BIB Today, the daily podcast from the newsroom of Business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief. Starting May 1st, one of the most significant transformations of our vehicle insurance commences in British Columbia. The Insurance Corporation of British Columbia, ICBC as we know it, introduces what it terms an enhanced care program, which almost sounds too good to be true. Lower premiums and improved care and recovery benefits if you're injured in a crash. If you're as curious as I am, the person with the answers is with me today. Nicholas Jimenez is the CEO of ICBC. Good to see you. Hi, Kirk, how are you? Good, you know this better than anyone that the two principal criticisms of our insurance system are always cost too much, provides too little. Um, so we're gonna look at how this new program attacks these two areas. Um, let's, first of all, let's go to the benefit side. Uh, why are these new benefits better? What are the main ones? Um, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna even step back before we start enumerating what are the benefits. Uh, the design of an enhanced care model inherently works better because everybody gets treated the same. Uh, in, in, in the tort model, uh, you can have two people in the same vehicle, uh, one driver, one passenger, same injuries if there's a crash, and there are vastly different experiences and outcomes associated with how they get treated, what benefits they have access to, et cetera. Um, an enhanced care model says, look, it doesn't matter who caused that crash. The most important thing is that we put everybody on a path to recovery and that everybody gets the same. Uh, now, what's especially uh, true in our new model is that the, the benefits that are going to be on the table available to you um, are vastly superior to what exists today. So today, uh, your entitlement for accident benefits runs at about $300,000. Uh, mm -hmm. In the future, it's it's essentially unlimited. Uh, so whatever you need, depending on your circumstance, uh, you will have available to you. And we've introduced, you know, in a very kind of detailed way, uh, a number of benefits and the amounts and how, how they can be accessed. But it's, it's incredible. Uh, like the support that you're going to get uh, is just going to be vastly, vastly different from income replacement to uh, the care that you need uh, if you're incapacitated and you can't take care of yourself, cook meals, someone looking after you in your home, uh, whether you need counseling, uh, you know, it, it goes on and on. But the, the, the array is just is just so much better than it is in current state. I mean, it raises so many questions. I, I don't know where to start. But I mean, what, one of the first things that trips across my mind is, why didn't we do this before? Well, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's an easy and a complicated question. But what, what <laughs> I know is that other provinces have done this before. So thankfully, yeah. the model that we're developing is one that's based on what already exists uh, in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. Manitoba is probably the closest uh, model that is the one that we've largely built our system from. Quebec has an enhanced care model as well. So, you know, in those those provinces went Quebec in the 70s, Manitoba and Saskatchewan in the 90s. You know, I can't speak for what happened between 1973 when we started with the model we have to today, but what I can say is, you know, we're, we're moving in the right direction. Essentially, you, you know, I think you get to the, a point where these systems become, these tort systems become unaffordable. Uh, and that's where we were at, clearly. Uh, and you're seeing that in, in other provinces where, you know, court jurisdictions, they're just at the mercy of port, which is an, an inherently expensive mall. Uh, and it doesn't do a very good job, I think, 
uh, really focusing on the person. The power. Um, again, it, it will beg some questions here. Um, what are the trade-offs? You know, we, it, it does sound um, ideal. What are the trade-offs for consumers? Do you see any? You know, I really don't. I mean, you, you will hear people on the other side uh, of, of this debate, um, and there's not many, but there are some, obviously, those in the legal community, uh, who will say, well, you're not giving people their right to sue, uh, and they're not having access to the courts to settle this court. And I yep. say, well, to, to what end? Uh, if we can provide you know, the same benefits and more that you would otherwise be getting through the courts, and we can do it you know, with, with, with more certainty, we can do it uh, with more care involved in the system, and we can do it more quickly, uh, then, then I don't actually think you're giving up anything. Uh, and I think, in fact, you, you, know, you said it at the beginning, you're getting kind of more for less. And it, and it, sounds, it sounds too good to be true, but the reality is the system is in every single respect better for customers. Uh, when it comes, and particularly injured, I mean, really, we're talking about injured uh, customers because you know the vehicle damage parts of our businesses are going to be largely the same. Uh, so for the fifty thousand or so people who get injured in a crash every year, this system is going to be so much better. And I don't yeah. think they're giving up anything. I really don't. So, so um, I mean, circumstances change. Um, are, do you have mechanisms? To revisit, um, revisit the the, the benefits, uh, to appeal the benefits. So, you know, what, is is it is it a this is the last word on the situation kind of thing? No, well, I think there's a couple of things in in your question. I mean, so there's uh, let me start with the the design of the system and how the system is going to kind of uh, self monitor and self regulate. So there's legislative. Um, Built into the legislation, the regulations are reviews, uh, you know, around uh, around the, the the benefits. We've got you know escalators uh, in the the regulations that say, look, you know, costs are going to go up in life generally for all of us. So the amounts attached to these benefits should follow the cost of living. So that's a really important change. That wasn't true uh, in the old world, um, right? Uh, and that was that was a problem clearly. Uh, and that's why we had to make the change back in 2019 from, you know, 150,000 to 300,000 in terms of the access benefit limits. But the, but the kind of the more fundamental question, I think, is, you know, where do I go if I don't feel like I'm being given a fair shake? And I think that's a fair question. Um, and, you know, we're expanding the, the, the channels, if you will, and improving on the channels that exist today. So you've always had internal channels. Uh, you know, you obviously deal with an adjuster. Uh, there are going to be claims recovery uh, specialists in the future. And if that's not working the way you want it to work, then, you know, you've got internal escalation opportunities through their manager and then into customer relations. And once you kind of get into the customer relations side of things, you know, it triggers a whole bunch of internal reviews that we kick in from technical reviews to business reviews, outside experts, et cetera. And then through all of that, if there's still a feeling that you know something's not quite right, you've got external bodies that you can you can seek help from. Uh, you've got a, a new fairness officer. So legislation was passed. This is in a, a position established 
in legislation and regulation that we're actually going through the process of hiring right now. Uh, a government and our board will, will hire a fairness officer. And they won't be able to, you know, consider your your particular issue. Uh, and if that's not working for you, you've got an ombudsman, uh, an officer of the provincial legislature. And, and if you still find that, you know, that's not working for you, you've got access to the Civil Resolution Tribunal. So mm-hmm. there's lots of steps in the system where I think people will have opportunity to say, hey, I don't like the way this is going. Now, even before it gets to any of those points, if we look at just an individual and their particular character, uh, I mean, the key thing here is ICBC is not, we're not doctors, we're not staffed with medical experts. So we're leaning on the healthcare system and, and, and that includes doctors, but also the, the array of treatment providers say, look, we're gonna put together a care, that care plan is gonna be based on your particular injury. And ICBC is going to kind of case manage that, but not in the way that they're getting involved in deciding how many treatments you get. It, it's really up to the individual and their treatment provider to say, here's the path ahead. And if that's not working because of whatever reason, you know, there's new opportunities to get medical professionals into the system to say, look, I'm going to take a look at this to see where, where recovery is getting stalled and how we can accelerate it or amplify it. So, you know, th- these are all new features that will be built into a recovery model that I think should give people confidence. They're gonna they're gonna get to where they need to be. So, so you you will have choices of um, of the medical practitioners that you have. There's no no question there. Um, um, is there any place left now in the system for personal injuries lawyers? Uh, well, I mean, outside of the outside of the auto space, they'll continue to. <clears throat> You know, to work in you know slip and falls and in store retail environments and anywhere that's yeah. not at work or 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 not in a vehicle. Um, but as it relates to the vehicle part of it, um, no. Now, if you're driving your vehicle in a jurisdiction where there, you know, there's there's a tort scheme, so most places in the state and obviously a number of provinces, Canada, you know, you're still going to have uh, you're still going to be subject. To, to tort if you are involved in a crash and you, you, you've caused that. In BC, no. Now, yeah. I should say, actually, let me, let me qualify that. There are certain instances in the legislation uh, that provides for people to seek other damages uh, beyond that, those that are defined in sort of the care model. Uh, so if there's a criminal, uh, criminal conviction involved in the person who, who hits you, uh, or if there's some kind of liability uh, someone designed a bridge and that bridge collapsed and you feel like there's, you know, there's, there's, there's some punitive damages attached to that. But it's really limited in the scenarios where that. Yeah. It's now, obviously. Yeah. Okay. Um, you've still got uh, uh, countless numbers of these cases. Well, you probably know how many there are that are still left in the system um, come May 1st. Presumably, they run their course. How long do you think that takes before the the, the system truly trans, transforms into this new one? That's a good question. Uh, and you're right. There's a lot. There's probably about eighty or ninety thousand left to settle. And wow. that may not sound like a lot, but the the value of those claims is around ten billion dollars. Uh, and so, you know, we see that happening uh, over really a five to seven year time frame. Now, some will obviously go beyond that. Um, but the vast majority should be settled within a five to seven year time frame. 
but it's a big yeah. part of our business. And, and, you know, quite frankly, it's a business that we can't just sort of, you know, turn our attention o- away from because, you know, every dollar that, you know, it, you know, a claim settles for more than what we think it's worth, you know, has to get paid for in the current system. So we've, we've estimated those claims at 10 billion. Uh, and if through some circumstance of, uh, you know, people trying to accelerate the, the value of those claims uh, in ways that, you know, are more than what we've estimated, well, you know, that that's a real risk for us. We have to, we have to manage that really carefully. Yeah. Was there any consideration given to, frankly, suffocating that entire system and just saying, you know, here we are, we have a new one, and uh, and everybody now falls into line with that, and all these other cases are, you know, are, are essentially irrelevant now. Yeah, I'm not sure that that would be legal or constitutional. Um, okay. So no, I, I think I think there was never an idea that would be okay a realistic good. option to consider. Good to know. Um, so when a system confers more benefits, it look usually it comes with more costs. So how did you get at the cost side? Um, well, there's going to be different kinds of costs. So we are going to see, you know, we're going to see uh, <clears throat> the way we categorize costs today is, you know, costs uh, against the, what we say accident benefits and then costs that are derived in tort, like the actual litigation amount. So, you know, we're going to see more costs in those accident benefits because those are the things that you're paying for. We call them first party benefits. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and there's going to be new costs that were previously covered for by people who were at fault. So you're going to have access to a whole range of benefits and at higher levels than you did to income replacements, a great example. So in the current state, uh, if you were at fault, you didn't, you know, you, the, the income replacement amounts were, say, the mid 50,000. The income replacement amounts available to you today is closer to 100,000. Um, so those costs are going to go up. Uh, but those those are appropriate costs. What's going to go down substantially is uh, the, the 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 litigation costs associated with hiring lawyers. We spend about 170 million dollars a year on defense counsel. You know, there's mm-hmm. a huge cost to that. We've got uh, an in-house uh, you know team of lawyers as well, and then there's all the costs just involved in the legal process. Uh, and payments, you know, the contingency fees that go not to customers, but to their plaintiff counsel. So those costs are being pulled out of the system. And that's where this largely the savings are being derived from. Yeah. I'm always fascinated with process when uh, when you see this kind of transformation, um, because at times the transparency of the process can help convince people of its legitimacy. So did, did you start out with any... Um, ideas or any beliefs, even a target, a percentage um, of what ICBC could yield in the way of savings for consumers and in the way of benefits for them when this? Well, I'd say, I'd say yes with a little bit of a but. So, you know, the, the idea of an enhanced care model is one that I think has a lot of merits on its own as a concept, uh, but then you need to test it. You actually need to sort of design the model in order to prove out the fact that it's going to be a better model than the one that you're currently in. And so it wasn't until we began to design the model and use actuarial methods uh, to kind of build out, you know, not just what would the product look like and what would our claims experience be uh, that would then tell us, ah, okay, we think that the model is going to cost this much. And that is 
significantly less than the current model we've got. But that's when we got to the point where we can save, you know, probably about a billion and a half in this new world. Uh, so you don't start out with a billion and a half and then design a model around that. You start out with the idea that there's a better way to do auto insurance in PC. And then you build it and then you arrive at where you think you're going to save. Were you surprised at how much was available? No, I'm not, because you just have to look at the litigation costs that I was describing earlier. It, you know, the, co the average settlement period for a, a tort claim today is somewhere in the three to four year range. There's huge costs attached to that just to have, you know, uh, legal counsel mine those files. Um, and those aren't funds that are going into somebody's, you know, care or recovery. Those are costs, you know, attached to medical experts and and, and paralegal and legal assistants and lawyers and court fees and you know you you know just goes on and on and on and those are costs that are just being churned uh, yeah. that you know we we just feel that you know is is not a good use of premium dollars. I'm I'm also interested in um, in the culture that uh, that likely had to change a bit you know in this I mean, people I think have a perception that ICBC can can be a, you know, a little bit adversarial when you start making a claim, when you begin to talk about these things. Um, you're, you're going into a system that has a, you know, more of a, a clarity about outcomes now. Um, so what does that do in terms of the culture that you as a, as a CEO have to then work with internally in order to uh, you know, change the channel a little bit? I think it's a fair question. Um, I mean, the tort system drives a certain behavior, right? You have to play by a set of rules that are designed, you know, by a system that you didn't get to design. Um, I'll tell you, most of our people breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, tort's very stressful, um, you know, and for, for you know, a percentage, of, a, a large percentage of customers, our staff were never able to interact with them because there was always an intermediary. So you, you never right. got a chance to, to kind of, begin a relationship uh, around a care journey was really beginning a relationship around a lawsuit. So there's a big sigh of relief, I think, from our folks that, you know, this model is not going to be focused on conflict, uh, but one focused on on recovery and care. Uh, so, you know, now that's not a change you can make overnight. And this is your point around culture. So I think, you know, we've, since 2019, you know, we've begun to build uh, a new kind of recovery function that's specifically designed to, you know, do this kind of work. Now, over time, if you imagine you said, we've got five to seven years to sort of run off that old book. Uh, and then, you know, over time, we're going to build up the new book. So we're, we're growing a team and capabilities and new processes uh, and new relationships. Uh, and that's been a huge change for us and a positive change. Um, so we're the, we've hired about 200 people since 2019 in this recovery space. And a lot of those people have backgrounds from, you know, the allied treatment professional community. So IROs, physio, OT, kinesiologists. And this is a new muscle coming into the company with a new mindset around, hey, I, I know how to work with people to help them on a care journey. Uh, that's what I do, what I was trained to do. Uh, and those folks are gonna help lead us uh, and others in, in, in this new world. The second part of it is not just the culture internally around how we look at solving a claim. It's 
how we work with the community. So I think it's fair to say prior to 2018, we had a fairly tense relationship with medical community and, and the treatment provider. Uh, we didn't get along that well uh, because I don't think we worked at those really. But we started in, in the, the first set of reforms and then now with, uh, with enhanced care to really build relationships where relationships previously had been left, you know, unbuilt, uh, unmanaged. And, and that was a huge thing for us. I can't say enough about how much work it was to kind of begin talking, not just to, you know, associations representing, you know, chiropractors and uh, kinesiologists and physiotherapists and, and others, but with the disability community. Um, so, you know, one example is we actually brought in, you know, uh, people from uh, Pain BC, Fraser Valley Brain uh, Injury Association, the Spinal Cord Injury Association of BC. We said, look, help us design this, you know, help us figure out where the system doesn't work today for people who are seriously or catastrophically injured. Um, they got right down to what, what should we call our people? Like what, what type do we give our staff? And, you know, we, they said, no, 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 don't call them this, call them that, because this has a negative connotation. This scares off, you know, our community. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was hugely valued. Uh, you know, we've had probably somewhere between 70 and 100 meetings in the last two years to help think through, design, and ultimately build this new world. That's a culture change uh, that is going to last, you know, forever. Well, it also begs one other question, which is, you know, a lot of places put off uh, some of their own reforms, some of their own big issues because of the pandemic, right? The pandemic disrupted everything. Um, what gave you the confidence that you could still meet, say, a May 1st timeline here, given that a lot of this work probably had to take place when you didn't have the capacity to have in-person meetings? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm just, I'm reflecting this, this change was announced in February of 2020. A month later, yeah. we were in a pandemic. Um, yeah. and, and so, you know, we had no option to, to stop the project or to delay the project. Uh, and so the, we went virtual almost from the get-go. We've got about 400 people working on this internally. Uh, you know, thousands of whom will ultimately be impacted internally, and then tens of thousands externally, from our brokers to the treatment professionals to doctors to the stakeholders. Um, and so it was amazing to be, and I, you know, I, I can take no credit because you know they're doing they're doing the detailed work, but people uh, responded because I think they had a real clarity of purpose, uh, you know, and, and and a really galvanizing date in front of them that was going to be set in legislation that really had no no ability to change. Uh, you had no so ability at all. No, you couldn't have, you couldn't never, have. never entered the conversation. Uh, we never contemplated not delivering May 1st. Um, mm. And so the entire system moved. And I give credit, like I said, to the stakeholders who all those meetings I described, all virtual, uh, you know, to, to the consultants who are helping us, some of whom are you know, not not in this time zone, some of whom are not even in this continent, uh, who are just adapting uh, and adjusting their lives, to, you know, to meet a specific standard uh, time uh, working schedule uh, to, you know, to our brokers uh, who had to handle all the training and all this work uh, in those circumstances. Anyway, it's, it's fair to say people just, uh, they just dug deep and got it done 
which is it's an amazing accomplishment. I hope someone writes about this in a business case because I think it's a really remarkable. Yeah, a couple of things uh, left in our conversation I want to pursue. Um, one is I, I think people might wonder, uh, given that we're doing so many things online now, uh, we've moved so quickly in digitizing a lot of our transactions, a lot of our a lot of a lot of our daily lives. Period. Um, why there isn't really uh, any kind of signal that the bricks and mortar of the auto plan of the you know the the buildings where you walk in and sit down and and fill out your form um, are, um, are are disappearing. It, it, are they are they just there on a bit of borrowed time now? I don't think so. Well, let me answer it in in two ways. One, uh, and you may be aware of this, but we're actually in the middle of uh, developing uh, an online insurance model that would be implemented in May of next year. We wanted to go through one full policy year in this new world before we delivered an online option for people who want to renew, uh, you know, uh, online. So that's happening, and that's a great thing. Um, you know, would I like this to happen five years ago? Absolutely. Is it happening now? And is it the right time? Yeah. Uh, so people who want to renew their insurance online next year, they can do so. That's a great thing. Uh, but what I will say is there remains an important role for brokers. Uh, I think a lot of people want to dismiss or diminish the complexity of insurance. Ah, it's auto insurance, same as last year, whatever. You know, I, I've been buying this for 20, 30 years. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. And, and I think it, it understates the complexity of the insurance contract. And I think this is where people, customers often get frustrated in the, in, in, in the claims journey where they don't understand what they bought and they don't understand what they're entitled to or not mm -hmm. entitled to. And I think that's where a broker really you know, provides a lot of value. Uh, and so even in this online model that we're developing, they're still going to be involved uh, in a way that brings the benefit of all their, you know, training, et cetera. Um, if we look back to the pandemic and we saw what happened, you know, last spring when basically the, you know, the bottom fell out, we had to, many brokers had to close their offices. We switched and introduced almost over, like literally almost overnight, it was actually over two nights, over a weekend, uh, an option for people to renew over the phone and through email. Uh, at one point in April and May, 80% of customers were doing that. Now mm. we kept that option. So people, could continue to do that. But as things started to open up again in June, uh, when the provincial health officer kind of eased back on those restrictions, you know, that 80%, well, that started to fall really quickly and people went back to seeing their broker. So right now, I think it's probably about 20% the last yeah. time I took that number. So is that a pattern of, you know, convenience? Is that just falling into re repetition? I don't know, but, you know, it tells me a little bit that people aren't ready to, say goodbye to the broker, uh, and neither are we. We're, we're invested in the channel, even if we can provide an online option. Yeah, and, and certainly as you make this transformation, people will have questions and, and uh, sure. you know, nobody, nobody likes dealing with a bot. Um, now, uh, tell me a bit, uh, we, we uh, alluded to earlier on where this leaves ICBC in terms of the context of other jurisdictions with insurance. Where do you think it places British Columbia now in, in terms of how it shapes up against other other provinces, for instance? Well, I think our product is is among the best, if not the best in the country. Um, so I said we built it off of Manitoba, but I think we introduced things that even Manitoba doesn't have. Um, 
So I, 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 and we've got features of our model. Again, it's the last mover advantage. I mean, it's sort of a sad thing to say, but, uh, but it provides you with the benefit to learn where others have tried and failed or tried and been successful. So I think we've been able to build that into this model. So in Canada, our model stands up against any in the country, if not, uh, you know, top. now we have to prove that out, uh, but certainly on paper, uh, it's designed to be one of the best. Um, yeah. And so when you uh, finally catch your breath on the morning of uh, May 1st and introduce this, um, what's the next wave of work? Well, I mean, May, May 2nd is not, we'll walk away from this project uh, and, you know, kind of wrap our hands and say, thank God, thank goodness that year's over. Uh, I, I think the journey's just beginning. So it's going to take, going to take a while for us to mature the model. Uh, you know, we built it on a bunch of assumptions about what we think would happen. Uh, we have to make sure that those assumptions hold true. And if not, we sort of calibrate uh, and adjust. Uh, we've got to continue the work with stakeholders to make sure that there are no pain points that emerge where, you know, things we missed, blind spots, et cetera. Um, so we're going to continue that work. And that's at least one to two years to really get the system fully formed. Uh, I think we're going to turn our attention uh, to the digital platforms that we have for services. So I mentioned insurance is one. We have uh, online claims options today. So you can put in your first notice of loss and check the claim status. They can be doing a lot more for customers. So I think we're going to be investing uh, more heavily in those digital uh, solutions for customers. Uh, and I think we're going to be looking more generally at the vehicle uh, products because there's a lot of cost pressure, you know, vehicle costs and repairs that go up in every jurisdiction, not just BC, four to five percent yep. per year. Um, and 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 that's a challenge that every insurer has got to face. You know, vehicle replacing a bump a bumper, replacing, you know, uh, side view mirror, replacing, you know, quarter panels, those things are loaded with technology and they're really expensive to repair. So we've got yeah, a, I just had a I had a car door replaced uh, uh, this year and uh, I, my car must be worth $700,000 or something. I mean, I just, <laughs> every component has that kind of thing proportionally. So that, you, you know, that's driving a carbon, uh, a carbon McLaren. <laughs> uh, well, no, you know, electric vehicle. Um, no, it's true. But I am, I am interested, you know, so that's interesting. So you think that's probably the next, the next yeah. frontier here is to, to deal with that side of the business. It is. Um, and if you spend any time talking to the collision repair industry, uh, they would they would say the same. They've got a bunch of challenges. The one is obviously the complexity of vehicle design and repair. Uh, the other is, you know, the, the manufacturers are are increasingly looking to get into this space and own this space and that whole sort of end. Right. I want to sell you the car. I want to sell you the insurance. I want to, you know, control the data that's in the car. Uh, and then I want to control the repair experience and all the parts that go into that. Thing. Well, you know, when you have that closed ecosystem, you know, they get to they get to manage the cost structure attached to that. So, so we have to work with the you know work with our partners to figure out how to keep that part of the business, which is worth about a billion and a half dollars, in check because you know we don't want that to be the next you know the next transformational journey that we've got to go through because costs are going up higher than we think is reasonable. Yeah, you don't want the 21st century tort equivalent emerging on you. Do no, you? we don't. We really don't. Uh, you know, no. the, the goal is to keep this product affordable and to keep this product one that works for customers and to give people options uh, so that the product they buy 
give them the chance to be for you know distance-based driving right you've seen that uh, as a fairly standard offering uh, in other markets uh, as a way for people to control their insurance bill you know uh, these are things that we need to kind of begin putting on the table thinking more about uh, it's just part of being a modern insurer and that that's clearly where we're going yeah. Uh, last last question. I mean, it, not everybody's using uh, an automobile or a truck um, as their vehicle of choice now. We have we have a lot of new forms of personal transportation that are uh, whipping around our streets. Um, again, um, what's the guidance that we get from ICBC about where it's going to be involved in things like electric bikes, scooters, those kinds of things that that people are using for um, good economic purposes in order to get from here to there? Yeah, I mean, mobility and micromobility, I think it's absolutely <clears throat> the shift that's happening in transportation. I mean, COVID sort of created some disturbances in the way people use things like rideshare and ride hail mm -hmm. and, and, and transit. But, but outside of those mobility options, uh, the ones you've just described are absolutely, you know, a place where we need to get our heads uh, around in terms of, you know, uh, product options, potential gaps, uh, you know, licensing and registration issues. Some of those involve the province, obviously, because they're 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 parts of the Motor Vehicle Act that belong to us, don't belong to us. So uh, that is a interesting and urgent policy conversation that I think uh, needs to be had for sure. Yeah. To see and hear more. Well, we could we could spend all day, but I want to want to thank you for your time today, Nicholas. It's been great talking to you again. Yeah, thanks. I've enjoyed this. Nicholas Jimenez is the CEO of ICBC. I'm Kirk Point, publisher and editor in chief of BIB. Thanks for watching. We'll see you again. Bye.